0: Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlo Castain. The Isle of Man is an independent nation and home to one of the most successful sustainable shellfish fisheries in the British Isles. Developed over a period of 30 years, the marine nature reserve now accounts for 52% of Manx coastal waters inside the three-mile territorial zone where the Isle of Man government has the greatest control. My guests today are Phil Gorn and Peter Duncan. Phil Gorn was elected to Tynwald, the Manx parliament, in 2003 and was Minister of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry from 2005 until 2010 and then Minister for its successor, the Department of Environment, Food and Agriculture, from 2011 to 2014. Peter Duncan is the Isle of Man Government's Senior Marine Environment Officer at the Department of Environment, Food and Agriculture. Phil Gorn is on Twitter as at Phil and the Isle of Man, due to its designated UNESCO Biosphere status, is on Twitter and Instagram as at Biosphere Hello both. Phil, perhaps I could start with you. Isle of Man Fisheries has been on a remarkable journey. Could you perhaps describe for us the state that things were in when you first became Fisheries Minister in 2005? Yes,
1: uh, certainly. Look, things weren't wonderful, it's fair to say. We had a stagnating fisheries industry. There was no real uh, innovation, no particular drive. A lot of... um, dependency on government to provide fisheries subsidies at that point there were a lot of people who were who had geared up their business purely based on the subsidy just before I think I became minister, the subsidy was removed. So we were in a a fairly difficult position. The the fishermen quite concerned as to how they were going to survive now that they weren't going to get the government support. We were lacking a strategy.
0: You say that the fishermen were quite concerned. That doesn't necessarily sound like fishermen. I can imagine they were pretty hopping mad. Uh, Yeah,
1: They, they were very angry at the thought of of losing their subsidy. But by the time I became minister, the subsidy had already uh, been removed. At the time, it was expected that you would have boom years and bust years. And uh, this was just considered to be a natural part of the fishery. There wasn't really very much by way of planning about uh, trying to develop a more sustainable uh, fisheries
2: model.
0: Peter, things have clearly changed. And I wonder if you could give us a, a brief overview of what the fishery is like today.
2: We actually have five fisheries and they're all shellfish fisheries rather than traditional whitefish, you know, cod, haddock place type things. So we have king scallops, the largest species of scallop. We've got queen scallops and we also have uh, three different pot fisheries, which is lobster and crab and then a, an offshore whelk fishery, which is a more recent development. In terms of, of what's changed, I think we now think a little bit further ahead. There is a, a long-term strategic document developing a society Space for several fisheries is a complex and expensive thing and it does take time. And really that probably started in the mid-2000s, 2006, 2007. Although there was a big database before, it hadn't really been applied to fisheries management. And so that's been a big change. We've now moved to a position where in one of the fisheries, there's an actual stock assessment, which is unique around the UK for Queen Scallops. We do surveys every year and we look at what we've got and we set a total allowable catch accordingly. Now that sounds fairly fundamental but in fact in in, in some of the fisheries that we're talking about it's quite revolutionary. We have comprehensive management measures for almost every aspect of the fisheries and not only do they manage all aspects of it but they're actually quite responsive. So instead of using statutory instruments or, or legislation, which take quite a while to change if you so desire, we tend now to manage via license condition, which means every fisherman has a license, and on that are a series of conditions, and we can actually change that overnight. Um, so that allows us to respond quickly, but it also allows us to respond to the different states of the fishery during the year. So as one season finishes, another season comes in, we can introduce management measures based on the science, based on requirements. There were 159 scallop vessels in 2016, we're now down to seventy-three, and there are forty of those vessels which, which fish Queen Scallops. And that's a mixture of Manx vessels and UK vessels. The grounds are not wholly within Manx territorial waters. The Queen Scallop fishery got Marine Stewardship Council certification ten years ago or so. Several of the requirements to get that certification and maintain it was that you had management measures in place, that you had stock assessments in place, and that you had industry participation. Participation in the process. I mentioned that we've got science-based management, but we also introduced a Queen's Scholar Management Board that has now morphed into a scallop management board, and that's been really important in enabling the industry members to have a say in the management of the fishery. I think that's really critical.
0: Now, I want to go into some of the detail um, and, and the, you know, the history of the marine protected areas and what's now the marine nature reserve. But just before we go into it, I think there's a, t- a couple of terms that we need to define so that people people know what we're talking about. When we talk about the the naught to three, the three to twelve, as we will do, what is it that we're going to be talking?
1: about? Well, the north to three or the three mile limit is the uh, the part of the territorial sea of the Isle of Man, uh, which has always been deemed to belong to the Isle of Man, certainly for for generations. Three to twelve mile uh, was something that was negotiated, and I think it was probably one of the first examples of the Crown Estate actually being ceded to a different party. This was a negotiation that took place, I think, in the uh, early uh, 1990s, and it was agreed that the Isle of Man could manage its seabed from 3 to 12 miles. So effectively, our 3-mile limit became a 12-mile limit. But between 3 and 12 miles, there was a requirement that the UK uh, fisheries authorities uh, would have to agree to any measures that would be introduced. Now we renegotiated that fisheries agreement in the last 10 years and uh, that agreement now just requires the Art Man to consult with the UK fisheries administrations and to not do anything that would be deemed to be unreasonable. What we've tended to do is, is recognise that if we exclude visiting fishermen from our waters, it's not unreasonable then of their administrations to exclude us uh, from their waters. But I think uh, generally the approach that we've taken has been we want to work collaboratively and collectively to develop really good, truly sustainable fisheries. And if that uh, involves visiting fishermen, uh, then so be it. And possibly that's not a bad thing in in general because they'll see the, the positive results Of the measures that we introduce, and hopefully uh, lobby their own uh, governments to to do something similar when they get home.
0: Thank you, thank you. And and Peter, if we can get into the history, the origins of the Marine Nature Reserve predate Phil as Fisheries Minister, and they begin in embryo, I think, as a small protected area in Port Erin Bay down in the the southwest of the island. Do you think you could give us a quick history lesson? Why there, and then what happened next?
2: Yeah, you're right. It it did start off as a as a very small area down in Port Aaron Bay, and that's significant because The Port Erin Marine Lab was based there for over 100 years. And what they really required was an area of peace and quiet where they could conduct their experiments and they wouldn't be disturbed by by visiting fishing vessels, etc. And so, as you say, it started off as a small area back in 1989. And that was expanded a little bit. And it it gradually, I think, became recognised that if you leave an area alone, then A, there are more scallops in it, and B, those scallops start to move out naturally Um, and over the longer term it was generally recognised that those scallops within the protected areas were actually contributing significantly to the surrounding fishing grounds to the extent that after a few years first of all people started to fish around the edges of them and got better catches so the assumption was that there were better numbers inside the areas and there were certainly a a few transgressions legally um, early on in that process and that probably made the point but I think I think ultimately it was perceived that the southwest fishing grounds were a bit more reliable and bounced back quicker than those grounds on the east coast. But as the first ones became recognised and the science started to indicate that areas were connected by larvae um, and so that if you protect the adult stock in one area, you could improve recruitment processes in others. And so in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, Douglas Bay was closed to mobile fishing gear, so dredges and trolls. And then Laxey Bay and the Arbol Bay were also closed for other reasons they, they were marine protected areas but they were set up to trial hatchery produced scallops and see what the, what the growth rates were and they were relatively small areas but I think again that concept that they were seeding offshore fishing grounds became established.
0: So that's taken us out of Port Erin and uh, and into Douglas out there on the on the southeast I suppose it would be of the island and Niabal on the west and you mentioned one or two transgressions there. I wonder if if you would say that the fishermen had always been supportive of the concept of uh, marine protected areas, or, or whether there was initial resistance.
2: I wouldn't necessarily it was resistance. I think there was a bit of opportunism from time to time, but ultimately, you know, in order to prove something, there has to be evidence of it. And perhaps with hindsight, the fact that people were going in and looking and finding actually, in the end, supported um, the, the value and the benefit of the concept. When the results started to become more apparent that there was resilience provided by these areas and importantly that the fishermen could use them, that they weren't closed off exclusively uh, for other purposes, that the fishermen could still have access and that they were being used for the benefit of the industry. It started 30 years ago and it certainly took 10 years before the concept became became ingrained and, and, and important enough for it to be accepted.
0: Now I know we're going to talk about two of the really important and, and sort of quite dramatic marine protected areas uh, or parts of the Marine Nature Reserve later on, specifically Ramsey Bay and Bay Carica. but Phil, just you know, looking back at the politics of this, your job as a, as a minister, as a politician, was to shepherd people towards this new approach to fisheries and you needed clearly the support of the fishers themselves not least because it's it's kind of difficult to police the seas in the way that you can on land and you also needed to get your changes through Tinwald, the manx parliament how did you approach that challenge
1: sadly um the getting the changes through Tinwald bit was relatively easy because there wasn't really that much interest in fisheries uh, politics The amount of people who weren't fishermen who ever lobbied me about fishing as a general uh, constituency matter were very, very few and very far between. So it wasn't a big deal getting it through Parliament, but persuading the fishermen was the most important part. Uh, and I always took the view, when I was minister, that there was little point in me trying to introduce new laws, new rules, new regulations, new policies, if I hadn't won over the fishermen in the first place. So I always took the view that we had to work with the fishermen. I engaged with them. We we held loads and loads of meetings. That uh, we had the seeing as believing exercises, where we were taking fishermen to different parts of the British Isles and Europe to find examples of really good practice. So it was very much on those lines. We were obviously helped a lot by the science. And certainly when, I think it was Bangor University, finally demonstrated without any doubt that tagged spat from the port air enclosed area were reseeding the southwest fisheries, that seemed to be the light bulb moment for the fishermen. Uh, whereby in the past they had recognized that Port down uh, Closed Area was doing something once the, the science was there to prove once and for all that this was helping replenish the stuff uh, they, they, they really went for it
0: Of course Bangor University took over that responsibility for fisheries science on the Isle of Man from Liverpool University didn't it and I believe that Peter actually you uh, you were with Banger in the first place before you then came across and worked for the government
2: Yeah that's correct although I had a background in, in scallop fisheries I actually um, did a, a couple of years working on uh, the pot fisheries for banger and as you say it's, it's it's been a really a critical part of the fisheries development over the last few decades is, is having that science base and and an independent science base so the data is what it is it's collected it's presented you can take it or leave it but, but the results speak for themselves
0: now Phil we've touched on this already but uh, you know much as the isle of man is an independent nation with its own government with its own ability to you know make its own laws and control its own seas the Irish sea is shared by by many different vested and indeed national interests. So on different sides of the Isle of Man you're faced by England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. How does that relationship with these other nations work in practice at sea?
1: I think generally wherever you go in the world whether it's uh, the Isle of Man, the, the Irish Sea or further afield, the fishermen from different communities have a, a healthy mistrust of each other. But also a certain amount of respect for each other as well. So, in terms of the actual fishermen, they get on, they recognize compatriots in the industry, they recognize that they're going through the same trials and tribulations. As far as the administrations are concerned, I think it's fair to say that England stroke UK. Uh, generally felt that it was far too big to be really bothered about anything that's happening in the Irish Sea and, and, and the of man's territorial sea, but we always persisted and uh, kept bringing our issues when we needed UK support. Ireland and Scotland, uh, it's fair to say that the relationship with Scotland had been quite tense for quite a while, uh, but I, I think that uh, relationship has improved and certainly by uh, the creation of the Queen Scallop Management Board, inclusion of Scottish Fisheries Department or Fisheries Ministry members, as well as uh, Scottish fishermen, certainly helped us demonstrate that we were being as transparent as we possibly could be about decision-making. And I think that's really important for the future. To be fair, our shellfish industry is more static than than pelagic fisheries but even with the shell fisheries it's very obvious that the spat from our mature scallops some of it lands in in our seabed others appear in scottish and and northern irish fisheries in their territorial seas so we, we need to be working with each other overcoming the mistrust which exists between different fisheries administrations, I think. And that really is vitally important because one of the problems we've had with the Queenie fishery in the last five or six years, it is most likely to have been created by very intensive fishing in Liverpool Bay, uh, removing, almost annihilating the queen scallops there, um, so that there was uh, no spat arriving on the east coast of the island, which had quite a dramatic impact on our fishery there. So yeah, important, might be important to work with our partners in in managing the whole of the Irish
0: Sea. We've talked quite a lot in general terms now, haven't we, about the development of the Marine Nature Reserve but let's get into specific detail now and two bays in particular. Let's start with Ramsey Bay off the northeast of the Isle of Man. Now this is, it seems to me, it's a rather spectacular case study and I wonder if you could take us through what happened there, Peter, starting from its emergency closure in 2009. Why was it closed?
2: It's a very big bay um, and it's all also, well sheltered from the prevailing southwesterly winds, being in the northeast of the island. So, it was always a place where people could guarantee a day's fishing. And so, it attracted quite a lot of particularly smaller vessels from all over. And the consequence of that, when you look back at that time, and that was the, the 2000s, where the restrictions on it were not particularly comprehensive. And we ended up with a situation, which is, I don't think it's happened since, but there was an emergency closure put on the fishery in 2009. There simply wasn't anything there left to catch. At the same time, there was another process going on, which was the Mike's Marine Nature Reserve project. And that had identified over the previous years where the the key habitats and species were located around the island. And Ramsey Bay was one of the areas that really featured highly on that that list of important places to protect from biodiversity and conservation. So that process was going on parallel when the fishery was closed and one of the one of the really common features of marine protected areas is zonation for different purposes. And so during the the public consultation processes, the idea developed of having a fisheries management area within the larger marine nature reserve. And because the fishery had closed and and it wasn't certain that it would recover, then the fishermen were open to that idea that that if they agreed to the wider protection, that they could have a higher degree of management of the specific area within the, the reserve itself, as and when it actually recovered. And so the marine nature reserve was established in 2011. And that was really important because it was actually established under Manx law, so under the Wildlife Act, and it's the equivalent of a National Nature Reserve, Marine Nature Reserve, and it has statutory protection, it has bylaws associated with it, and that was the first time that had ever happened. So what we had in 2011 was an area with five different zones, zone for four of them were zoned for conservation and, and protection, and one of them was zoned for fisheries management. And so, over time, surveys again back to that importance of scientific assessment. Surveys demonstrated that the scallops had had started to come back in that bay. And so, by 2013, there was a bit of an experimental fishery. Now, part of the deal, if you like, was that the industry members would have a much greater say in managing that area. And so they took a very cautious approach. When the scallops came back, they said, right, we don't want to to mess this up. We don't want to lose the opportunity again. So they took a very conservative approach in the first year to fishing. And that has really, it has expanded over time. But that same conservative approach has, has remained since 2013 up to the present day. And so we now reach a point where, so about 50% of the whole marine nature reserve is technically given over to the fisheries management zone. But in actual fact, ever since 2013, the amount of area, the footprint of the fishery, has been significantly less than 10 square kilometres. So it's, a, it, it's an absolute fraction of the total 50 square kilometres that could be fished. Where we are now is the fishery now produces the same amount of value, Value in terms of money, the same amount of product that it used to produce over a whole 12-month cycle, it now produces that in two to three weeks. It two targets to three the weeks. very... Value, Amazing. Yeah. And it happens every year just before Christmas. So it targets the high-value Christmas market so the fishermen get more for their catch. And as I said, the footprint is, is a matter of somewhere between three and five square kilometres out of the total 50 that would be available. The footprint is less. The amount of effort that goes into it is less, the fuel bills are less, the value of the catch is higher. It, as you said at the beginning, it's, it's a fantastic model of, of co-management and considered strategic management of a fishery resource.
0: And when we were talking before the podcast you were saying that it's not every boat that goes there that for those two or three weeks of the year before Christmas it's just it's a small number and then the proceeds the profits get shared across the scallop fleet.
2: Yep that's correct the very first time it happened it was actually only about two or three boats that went and they fished on behalf of everyone else and as you said the proceeds were divided amongst members. What's happened since then is that number of boats have increased a little bit and I think it, it's important to say why that, that's probably happened. If fishermen are to embrace and support the idea of having areas restricted or removed from from that general free fishing type behaviour, then they need to see what it's producing, what the value of it is. And I can guarantee that there is probably no fishermen in the whole of the British Isles that has ever seen the scallops in numbers and size that occur in Ramsey Bay. So by being able to, to see it, it really is a unique experience. And it convinces the fishermen, the people involved in it first hand, that this is what's possible. That said, many of the fishermen once once they've witnessed it um, will happily collaborate and then um, use a single vessel to, to fish the shares, if you like, of, of multiple fishermen.
0: I think I'm right in saying that the area around Ramsey Bay is around 140, 150 square kilometres. You're saying that the fishery itself then comes down to about 50 square kilometres. And it's about um, between 10 and 20 percent of that that gets gets fished uh, for those two or three weeks each year. And I'm just wondering, you know, when we think about scallop fishing, we, we generally we think of dredging. Uh, is that still the way that that's happening?
2: Yes, it does still occur. But one of the options that protected areas with high densities provides is that you know that they're there, you don't have to go looking for them, and they're there in quantities that there isn't the financial risk of experimenting with new types of gear. So it opens up opportunities for, for example, reducing the impact of the gear on the ground, say by raising it up off off the ground on sleds, by increasing the distance between the teeth, which you're dealing with a bigger animal so you can select the bigger animals by modifying the gear by modifying the gear you reduce weight, you reduce the impact on the seabed, and over time you can start to consider concepts like even managed diving for scallops. So you can you can alter it basically by having a guaranteed stock on the ground. You can start to experiment more safely with with alternatives. Whereas if you're scratching around for a living, you you have to do the do the traditional methods.
0: Fantastic case study. Thanks so much for that, Peter Phil Bainer in the south of the Isle of Man. Pretty much framed by Paul Vash on the left and Port St Mary to the right. Now, this is without doubt a spectacular bit of coastline, but out of sight and out of mind, the seabed in Baina Carica was a different story. Could you tell us what happened there?
1: Yes, we were, I suppose, um, g'd up by some successes in relation to marine protected areas elsewhere. Baina Carica was, was our next big opportunity. We looked into um, various uh, opportunities for closing. In the end, uh, what we ended up with was a a closed area to dredge fisheries, but it was still open to the crab and lobster fishery. It's fair to say that there wasn't a huge amount of dredge fishing taking place, but what there was was particularly damaging to some fairly important habitats. So uh, it was felt that uh, this would be a really useful thing to to get closed off. Uh, My only regret was that we weren't able to do this and allow for a dived scallop fishery. I always took the view um, that uh, it was wise to go with the fishermen and not to push them too far. And uh, I know Peter was involved in some of the negotiation with uh, the fishing communities in Port St. Mary and uh, I'm, I'm sure he could probably tell better than I how um, uh, there was quite a lot of opposition to what we did there initially and now of course it's been quite a successful exercise and particularly the, the crab and lobster fishermen are, are delighted with the, the result.
0: Phil just moving on from the case studies the Isle of Man, it's a relatively small nation, people know each other, you can just knock on a government minister's door and there are, you know as Peter said uh, in the 70s anyway fewer than 80 licensed scallop fishing vessels do you think that the size of the Isle of Man and the size of Manx communities in general are an advantage when it comes to tackling problems like this, environmental problems and problems like overfishing?
1: I certainly think it's an advantage having the scale of the Isle of Man in as much as it is possible for us to have a really good idea and within 12 months have an act passed by Tenwald, the Manx Parliament, Uh, I mean, that that would be pushing it, but it is possible for us to do things like that. Whereas in in much larger countries, larger jurisdictions, it's much more difficult. The distance between the ultimate decision maker and the the people who might have the ideas can be quite uh, extensive. There are lots of processes to go through, whereas in the Isle of Man, uh, we have a relatively small team who do fisheries policy and the distance between them and the minister is, is about uh, two or three yards between their offices. So it's, it, it's a good thing. And yes, of course, uh, this makes good decisions easier to take and easier to make. Uh, and again, you know, at my sort of view in, in terms of futures for any large uh, coastline is to try to divide your fisheries into small manageable units. If you can see it then you can, you're far better to be able to understand it and manage
0: it. It's interesting. We come across this, again, pretty frequently. Uh, the idea that, you know, food systems in general have become so big that when you start breaking things down and those communities start to become smaller, whether they're, you know, food customer communities or brand communities or indeed, you know, physical um, communities in terms of where they live, those communities can be much more responsive.
1: The added bonus, of course, is it's much easier to get more response actions from the fishers as well because you, you live in a, in a smaller community if one rogue fisherman chooses to go and uh, fish in closed areas and, and do all the breaches of regulations it's very easy and quick to find out who that person is and it's also um, you know very easy for the fisheries community in which they, they operate to uh, to actually start saying well you know, hang on there why are you doing this you can see the advantage of um, doing things in the more sustainable way, in, in the correct way. Why are you, are you risking this? And I think, um, you know, I'm not saying necessarily that small communities are more responsible uh, per se, but uh, in a much larger area, um, you know, you could have someone uh, fishing from a community that's several hundred miles away from somebody else. Why would they be as responsible as the person who you know, affected the, uh, the, the fisheries right on their doorstep? They can come in, do a sort of a, the equivalent of slash and burn on the fishery and then disappear off and do it somewhere else. Uh, because the territorial sea in the area that they're governed by is so much bigger in the Isle of Man, if if you took that approach, you could quickly wipe out any sort of thoughts of sustainable fisheries, which would be damaging to the community in which you live.
0: Fascinating, um, Peter. We're coming towards the end of the programme. And I wonder if you could help us just look into the future for a moment. What's next for Isle of Man Fisheries? So I think there's a
2: a, a few important concepts that we need to consider for the future. One is diversification and building in some resilience. We have a relatively low number of of species that we, we rely on. And Phil alluded to the idea that you really need to manage for multiple areas and multiple types of activity. It's one of the ideas within the Marine Nature Reserves that you can zone for different activities. If it's a bit of a free-for-all, then the biggest and strongest win. But by maintaining space for everyone, whether that's marine conservation, biodiversity, pot fishing, mobile gear fishing, recreational angling, whatever it might be, we have to be able to make space for everything. So, for example... Having marine nature reserve management plans, we talked a little bit about the North to Three in particular, which is an area of, of of the territorial sea that we we can manage more comprehensively. Um, and we have recently introduced a North to Three management plan for fishing. So what that will enable us to do is take the concepts and and the, the lessons learned from somewhere like Ramsey and expand them into a larger area of of sea, providing some options for co-management of the fishermen themselves. The industry have a bigger say in that. But at the same time, abiding by the general principles of evidence-based, setting some limits and and managing what you have and and knowing with confidence that the stuff is still there. So there's no race to fish it out immediately.
0: And to what extent does climate change feature in your plans and the idea of blue carbon? Because um, I think the seabed in the same way when you plough a field you release carbon, the same happens with the seabed um, and yet you know there are seagrasses that can help to sequester carbon very rapidly.
2: Exactly and I, I think increasingly the last five to ten years I've seen a, a marked um, recognition of these bigger issues such as climate change and reducing you know our carbon emissions we have an advantage in that we have fifty percent of our not to three already within statutorily protected marine protected areas and so really that means that we we have the capacity to manage habitats for purposes such as carbon sequestration and storage and I think that really will really well be critical but we are facing Large-scale threats to the supporting environment for all of our fisheries—they are really fundamental to, to both the ecosystem services that they provide, the animals and, and algae, etc., that live there, but also to the, the the future productivity of the fisheries themselves.
0: And of course, you know, as climate change progresses, if we're not successful in keeping global temperatures below 1.5 degrees centigrade, the seas will continue to warm, and that could have an impact on the fish going forward as well?
2: Precisely. You know, all all species, and particularly species which are not particularly mobile, such as scallops and and queenies, etc., They have a temperature tolerance range. Um, At the moment, we're right in the middle of of their range. If things change, then we could be on the edge of it. And even things like ocean acidification, our key species are all shelled animals. If you change the pH of the oceans, then it starts to present difficulties for animals to survive. And so, as I said, I think a lot of things are coming together and a holistic approach to how we manage the sea is going to be a really key component to this.
0: Phil, just finally coming to you, the big difference between farming and fishing is that farmers own land, or they tenant land, so they have a greater potential to be able to change and take control of that change. Fishers don't have that capacity. They don't own the seabed. Do you think that there might be an opportunity to do things differently in the future in the Isle of Man's territorial waters? For example, renting out sections of the seabed to individuals or to small groups of fishers, perhaps for polycultures and for regeneration ocean farming?
1: Yes, absolutely. My only regret is probably too strong a word, but uh, the the, the one thing that I would have liked to have achieved and didn't quite make it was uh, to get part of our um, territorial sea leased out to uh, the fishermen so that uh, they they could actually manage a particular area specifically for themselves. I think there's great opportunity here to do more of this kind of thing Government needs to be very careful that it doesn't create too many policies and get into too much detail. Uh, To my mind, government is there to set the overall parameters to to have the vision and the goal Uh, and clearly the goal in in, in this case would be sustainable fisheries and uh, as much carbon sequestration as you can can, uh, manage to fit in. Um, Beyond that, The the people who who are usually best at coming up with ideas for their industry are the fishermen themselves. They know how it works and, uh, you know, with a little bit of encouragement along the the educational side, seeing as believing, seeing how other projects work. You know, we we, we could do some really quite dramatic and innovative uh, things in our territorial sea and certainly, you know, getting different sections of the seabed that the territorial sea rented out for different activities, sounds to me like an excellent idea. Uh, We we must get a dived scallop fishery. Um, You know, the opportunities for growing uh, kelp and uh, other uh, shellfish as well in in a a farmed way, in a sustainable way, regenerative uh, way, as as you suggest, are are massive for the hand and uh, I'd love to think that in 20 years' time, the whole of the Isle of Man will be surrounded with such
0: enterprises. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, both of you. But I'm afraid that's all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guests, Phil Gorn, former Fisheries Minister for the Isle of Man government, and Peter Duncan, Senior Marine Environment Officer at DEFA. This programme is part of a series in which we're talking about the future of ocean food. And if you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for FarmWell and FAI Farms. We're funded by Sankalpa, and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for FarmGate Podcast. I've been Finlow Costain. Bye for now.